Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Rose Schoen, founder and head coach of Azteca Football Club. Azteca isn't just about soccer. It is about a community that Rose has built, which supports young men and helps them become leaders off the field. On this episode, you'll hear from one of the most passionate coaches that I have ever met, and she isn't even 30 yet. When I walked into Rose's home, I was overwhelmed with the love I felt from reading all of these letters that her students and their families have written to her over the years that shared this appreciation and this gratitude for Rose, for her soccer coaching, and also overall life mentoring. Because Rose not only trains her students on the soccer field, she trains them off the field as well by creating the structure that focuses on discipline and that includes academic excellence and respect for others. She will not accept or keep any player in her club, regardless of talent, that doesn't commit to being respectful, playing hard, and studying hard. We discuss how talent seems to be universal, and the opportunity given is not, unfortunately. But Rose tries to balance this inequality by helping in more ways than many traditional coaches do. And that includes trying to help students get into college, by helping them find financial aid, by helping them find mentors and other coaches. We talk a lot about things that she and many of her players have faced, including depression and failure, and from that, how to stay positive, and that the muscle memory of positive psychology is a game changer. This conversation, and pretty much every conversation I've had with Rose, gives me such intense inspiration to do more and motivates me to make a difference. For me, that's quickly becoming the Rose Method. I really hope you enjoy this conversation half as much as I did because I think Rose Schoen is one to watch. Hi, Rose. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate your time. No, thank you so much. So we are in your beautiful home that I can't describe to our listeners enough. It is decorated with laminated letters that make me cry. There's pictures and trophies of all your students. There's your wedding picture with all of your students. It's incredible to be surrounded by such love. In preparation for this interview, I've come across so many of these stories that literally are on your walls. You lead your students with such structure and discipline and also education, both on the field and off the soccer field. And I've always been fascinated by how people got to where they are. So before we talk further about soccer, which I definitely want to get into, could we rewind your highlight reel just a little bit and hear where you grew up? So I was born and raised in Reno, Nevada. I played youth soccer there. I'm from a family of seven children. I'm the oldest. I graduated high school from Wooster High School, which is actually one of the oldest high schools in Reno. It's an inner city high school. Demographic is around 60 to 70 percent minority. 
a majority of the school is low income, but they have one of the best boys soccer programs in the state of Nevada. The culture at that high school is very soccer driven. We actually used to play futsal, which is indoor soccer 5v5. We play those tournaments at my high school. And so I was in a very soccer based culture where the dominant boys sport was soccer not football, which is very different than most traditional American high schools where the dominant boys sport, right, is the football team. It used to be the football team at that high school, but as the demographics started to shift in Reno, the kids zoned for Wooster were predominantly Latino and they were also very good soccer players. And there has been very high level players to go division one who have come out of that high school. But what was really kind of a formational part for me was that those kids that I played with in high school, we would all play together in the adult soccer leagues, the adult Latin leagues, they were unaffiliated, but produced players like Kevin Partida, who's now currently playing at the San Jose Earthquakes. There are other players, like a player that I worked with, George Medina, who's now playing at UNLV. Other kids, like one of my former players who graduated from Worcester, Adonis Chevarin, who played four years in college and went on to do very well. But there are a lot of kids, another kid, Jair Hernandez, he went off to play division one, and then he had an offer at a USL team. So essentially the culture of that area and that community is very soccer based. And when I started to attend that high school, I just started to understand the psychology and the culture behind soccer teams and really what builds successful soccer teams and the family that you really create out of these teams, which was very different than what I would consider like the traditional suburban traveling soccer team where kids play and they might get burned out and then they just quit the sport. The players I played with from high school on up Soccer is a lifelong sport, and it's also a family sport where a lot of times you are playing with your cousins and the, and the boys play with their dads or their uncles. And so it's a very family-based thing, and it was actually a really beautiful way to learn about the sport. Did you like soccer before going to Wooster? I did like soccer before, but I definitely dabbled in other sports. I did skiing. I had played softball, gymnastics, dance, um, but I really loved soccer the most. And it was a big blessing to go to that high school because I was really around people who love the game and were obsessed and would talk about it and were just so soccer knowledge. And for them, it's football. And they, you know, they'd make bets like who's going to win the game this weekend. And so I just started to see this whole other soccer culture um, that I hadn't been exposed to previously. And that's really what's ignited my love for the game. And so what did you do after high school? Did you continue that in college, your love for soccer? So after that, I went on to play NCAA in uh, Steubenville, Ohio for Franciscan University. I played a season there. I ended up going back to Reno. I had an injury too, so I took time off from playing. I ended up starting a business called Soccer Academy, which was an indoor soccer facility and a gym. I managed that from December 2010 until June 2013. And while I was doing that, I actually became a licensed coach. I earned my D-National licensing and my personal trainer's license. And I ended up starting to coach these middle school and high school boys and also men's indoor. We played in a league called the PASL, which is the second division of a very competitive men's indoor league that had a pro league above it. So I started to make connections with extremely high level men who currently now coach in college or went on to play at MLS or USL level. So I started to kind of build a network of these very dedicated technical men and boys And I realized that there were a lot of very, very gifted players that the only reason they really didn't make it anywhere was because they didn't have the financial resources to play in elite club soccer traveling teams. But they were some of the best players I had ever watched play in my life. And also some of the most dedicated that would train four to five hours on their own. Rewinding just a little bit. So when you were in Ohio, you had played in NCAA. What brought you back to 
Reno. At the program, the men's coach left. The women's coach went to the men's program and we were kind of left without a coach at that point. And additionally, I didn't quite see the passion for the game that I was expecting. And I realized that there were kids back in Reno that were better than some of the kids I was playing with and against in college. Not to discredit that level of soccer. They, there were some good players, but I was looking for something deeper in the soccer community. I was looking for real passion and people who wanted to be at that top level and compete. When I moved back, I was kind of on a quest to be like, where are these top level players? And during that time when I was in Reno working and coaching, I was actually driving out to play in Sacramento with a under 23 team. And I played on that U23 team with women who were playing at Harvard, Cornell, UC Davis, Sac State, Irvine. And I really started to see this high level of women's elite soccer. And when I was talking to the girls, I asked them, well, where are you going to play once you're 23? Because we're going to age out. And then they're like, there's this league called the Women's Premier Soccer League, the WPSL. And that's where we're going to go once we can no longer play U23. So then that became my new objective was how do I get into this league where all these amazing girls that I've been playing with are going to go play? And that's when I started the journey of understanding what WPSL was. I ended up moving to Sacramento in summer 2013. I went back to junior college to get back into school. Um, I played at American River College. And then out of that, I was recruited to play in the WPSL with the club I'm currently with, Premier de Mayo. And I've been on that club since we started playing WPSL in 2014, and I've played every season since then. So as you were um, playing at the WPSL, how did you run the Soccer Academy program? So Soccer Academy was before I got into WPSL. Basically, I had people who would work for me at Soccer Academy when I would come over to do my training sessions twice a week and play my games in the U23 league. I closed that business in 2013 so that I could focus on going back to school and playing WPSL. When I'm in Sacramento, I was working at an indoor soccer facility, which is ironically how I was kind of segued into starting Aztec FC. I was working at an indoor soccer facility um, to make money when I was attending school. So I would go to school in the day, I would train with my team, and then I would work nights very late because that facility would stay open until about 2 a.m. When I was there, they needed a men's soccer team for their Tuesday night league. And they asked me if I would want to coach men again. And I had taken a break from coaching for a couple months. So I put up a flyer on the wall and I said, tryouts, come through, free tryouts. And I had players show up. And ironically, one of the players that did try out, actually, I believe two of them are still currently with me, uh, Danny Lomelli and Ryan Campbell, who came and tried out. And so I've actually worked with some of these players that I still coach my men's team since 2013, which has been a very cool experience to see them develop over the years in the different leagues we've played in. You mentioned at Soccer Academy, what you realize is you've seen some really, really gifted players who didn't have money to play in kind of the, the club leagues. Can you expand on that? So if you are a gifted high school boy and you want to play and get showcased, that could run you on average three to 10000 a year. If you're playing at a DA, a developmental academy, your tournaments are going to be as far away as Dallas, possibly the East Coast. If you're playing that league, you are going to have teams all over the West Coast. And unfortunately, for a majority of these families, it is not possible for the mom or the dad to take those days off from work to even drive their kid to these tournaments if they are even able to afford staying at a hotel, paying for the tournament fees, paying for their registration, paying for the uniform kits. A uniform kit can run up to $500 or more to even register for these leagues. I've had players I've worked with who are offered in the Olympic Developmental Program, the ODP program, which is one of the main ways that Division I programs recruit. And that's how you get into the national team player pool. They've received offers to play at these high-level organizations, and they truly cannot afford it. That is their financial reality. 
And so I had to see the pain that these kids were going through, that they knew they were good enough and they truly just did not have the financial resources. And it kind of made me angry. It made me angry because in America, the men's team, we have not qualified for a World Cup, right? We missed the World Cup. And when I see these boys that I've worked with and I talk to other friends who coach all around the country and they're like, Rose, we work with these kids who are very gifted and just don't have the money. And the system is messed up because in other parts of the world, they don't use got soccer point ranking to determine who is the number one boys team. Professional clubs find these boys who are very gifted in Brazil, Mexico, France, and then they get them into these professional clubs because they are investing in the future. And really, it comes down to a financial problem. In other countries, if you are a youth club, you develop a professional male player and he gets sold at 16 or 17 to a big club. That youth club is going to receive hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars back in America. For example, DeAndre Yedlin, he played for a club up in Seattle. That youth club, Crossfire Youth Academy, had a big fight with U.S. soccer recently. This is a legal thing you can look up. And they are not going to be paid money from the fact that he transferred to an English premier team. So even a U.S.-based club that produced a professional player who is asking for the money because that's how it's supposed to work, U.S. soccer is like, nope, we're not going to rule in your favor. So how is that supposed to financially incentivize any of us coaching at the youth level to want to produce a professional youth player for the male side, right, where there's millions of dollars, literally hundreds of millions, when we know deep down that even if we go to court and fight it, we're not ever going to get paid for that. So there's a whole nother issue right there. So there are a lot of kids. For example, there's a kid out of Stockton who was told by NorCal, well, you're not good enough to play in the Olympic developmental program here. He has dual citizenship. He goes down to Mexico. He is currently playing in the first division for the men in Mexico, being paid as a professional player. When he was told by NorCal ODP, you're not going to get picked up. So what does this kid do? He did the most intelligent thing goes down to Mexico and he's playing in the first division, even though here in America, we essentially kicked him out of our player pool. So there are actually kids who are dual citizens leaving America who are very skilled players who could represent the men's national team who are being pushed out of the system. So if you are like me, if you have a finance background and you look at the financial issues affecting soccer and you come down to the youth level where I get to see where these kids fall through the cracks, it can be extremely infuriating because it is a solution that other countries have figured out that we struggle with here in the United States. And it's almost like, why are we still pretending like this doesn't exist? And when I've gone to people and I'm like, you know, if you didn't charge these youth players I work with 180 for a tryout to be in the national team pool, you might get some of these very gifted players showing up to the tryouts for free. And then, oh, they only want to do the tryouts three dates a year in Ripon, California for NorCal. So I have to convince these parents to pick three days and hope their kid might get picked up and pay $180. And then if you do make the team, then you got to throw down another two to 3000 if you want to be in the NorCal ODP pool. For a lot of these families, that is completely out of the question. And when you put that financial restraint on them, they're just never going to show up. And their kid is going to go into playing the adult Latino leagues or try to make it at their local junior college because they know that they just can't afford it. So you really try to solve this problem with Azteca. Can you tell me more about the mission statement for the football club? It's an economic problem, in my opinion, right? So I'm like, okay, what could a family making a low income to lower middle class family afford to realistically have their kid in soccer year round in a structured program four nights a week? When I've looked at the numbers, I've been able to develop a system that is affordable enough for these families. For example, our jersey kit is non-brand. Why do I choose non-brand? Well, I have players on the team who have multiple siblings in my club. They can literally reuse the jerseys. I have younger brothers wearing what their older brother used to wear 
because I use the same exact jersey for all the kids from age five all the way up to the adult team for their training shirt. They're the same colors and it's 25 bucks a shirt. Their families can afford to pay $25 for a jersey, right? And they can afford to get the socks. If they need discounted cleats, you know, we get discounted pricing at some of the places. So it's designed to help these families participate in a sport year round because the reality is if you're not playing year round, what are kids going to get into? Trouble. You have to give them something else to do or they're going to end up doing things that are not good for them. When you charge a family 500 for a jersey kit, you're already putting a barrier in their way. And the registration for the league that we play in for, you know, an entire season is 50 bucks. And then every game is $3 for the ref fee. That's something a family can realistically put two, three, four of their kids in. And why should we be overcharging these families when the reality is that sports were never supposed to be five to 10,000 a year for one kid? I just don't believe that you need to charge a family that much money. Because what I see happen is these kids drop out and it's kind of sad because then they don't have as much of an incentive to perform in school. Because when you're a student athlete, you're a lot more likely to get higher grades and you're a lot more likely to go for post-secondary education. And, you know, we're like, why is there such a low enrollment rate with Latino and African-American community at a division one level? If you look at the statistics, right? I'm like, well, the majority of these kids, unfortunately, they may have never met someone who actually said you can do it. You know, there's a lot of these counselors at the high schools or teachers who don't have the time to work with these kids. And in our program, I tell them every single one of you is capable of attending a college. Every single one of you is capable of doing it. We need to figure out what college works best for you. Some kids are going to go D1. Some kids are going to go play at an NAIA. Some kids are going to go to a junior college and they're going to get a technical degree. And possibly that's all they need is an associate's. Every kid has a different pathway to college, but to cookie cutter kids is not the correct path. And sports is a very good motivator for a lot of kids to keep their grades up. So we do grade checks monthly. The objective is above a 3.0 because that's realistically what you need if you want to compete for these bigger schools. To drill down deeper in that a little bit, Azteca is a tremendous soccer coaching program, but you mentioned a lot about the focus on post-soccer life, and that includes a lot of educational structuring. How did you incorporate that into Azteca originally? Realistically, the percentages of kids who will go from the high school level to the collegiate level as a student athlete is low, and even lower, it's around 1% from the collegiate level to the professional level. And everyone wants to be a professional player, but unfortunately, not everyone is going to play at that professional level. It doesn't mean that soccer cannot be part of your life. But another thing that I tell the kids is that you need to realistically be looking at what do you want to have as a career? And especially for the boys, because the boys are typically going to be the primary um, income earners in their family. And I tell them, okay, you want to have a beautiful wife. You want to have your children. You want to be able to financially support them. You need to go and earn your education because they always tell me, I want to help my mom. I want to be a good provider. I want to be a good man for my, my girlfriend and my wife. And I tell them, great, so let's get you into a career path where you can realistically make money in America. And so I really do emphasize STEM. You know, I have one kid right now. He's told me on Sunday, I'm going to study physics. And as a Latino male telling me that most of the time you do not hear that. He's like, yeah, in the fall, I'm studying physics. I can probably only make practice two nights a week because my course load is very heavy. He's very honest about it. And I tell him, I'm really proud of you for choosing to study physics at a four-year university, and we will see you at training when you can make it. Because that's the reality. Because he knows he's not going to play professionally, and he knows he wants to study that science. Great. I have other kids that are uh, want to pursue engineering. They want to pursue finance. They want to pursue economics. Um, I had a player um, graduate from Davis, and he studied managerial economics. And he, when he showed up on my team, he was at a junior college. And then I actually had helped him receive a scholarship offered to Menlo College, but he had an option between Menlo and Davis and he chose Davis. 
And now he's working in a great management position at a uh, local company. And he told me, he's like, I really appreciate the structure and discipline you put into my life that did help me at UC Davis. So I think that the discipline, the planning, the scheduling, uh, the mental tenacity that you develop in sports definitely carries over to academics and then will carry on to your career. When I was told that my parents would not be able to pay for $500 to go to a tournament to Vegas was kind of an impactful moment in my life. And then when I really began to think about it, why was that tournament $500 for my parents? Why was I being forced to pay $500 to play three soccer games or potentially four? Why is that the system? That shouldn't be the system. That isn't fair to anyone from any background to be totally honest. It isn't a good economic structure that, in a, especially in California, all the families are going to be competing to pay thousands of dollars to take their kids to tournaments. And then the tournaments are going to arbitrarily design point systems. And then whoever can attend the most tournaments per year is going to get the most points potentially. And then whoever gets the most points is going to get ranked. And then supposedly whoever's ranked higher is the best player, which isn't always the case. I, when I was recruiting, when I was coaching in junior college, I went and watched a quote unquote higher ranked boys team versus a lower ranked boys team. And I actually talked to the three kids that are on the lower ranked boys team who lost the game because in reality, those are the three best players on the field. And ironically, one of those kids that I helped recruit, I'm coaching his little brother right now on my team currently, and he's an amazing player and he is not on a top ranked team. And so why are we using the financial ability of one family that they can pay X amount of thousands per year to get points versus a family who has a kid that goes and trains on his own four to five hours a day and is truly that good of a player. And then when they go to these big teams, we're going to overcharge one family because they know that the dad's a doctor. And then they're going to like lie to the other parents and be like, well, we're going to charge you X amount of dollars. But in the reality, they're just trying to scholarship that one kid in. Why is everyone paying a different pricing for the same service when it's really overpriced to begin with? That was kind of my beef with them is that why not just charge everyone the same price and develop a system so that all kids can participate regardless of economic background. That's a better system because then the other parents don't feel like they're getting overcharged and then the low-income parents don't feel like that they're a burden because it's, when you start to create that in and out inequality in a team, people feel bad. And then how are you supposed to build a true team culture? And then you start to get, well, you know, you get weird team politics and that's not a good environment for kids to be in anyway. So why don't we just create a system where you are being allowed into a team and you will earn minutes based on your ability, based on your drive, based on your technical and tactical soccer skills. And so that's what the environment I've created in Azteca. And we do have kids from different economic backgrounds. We do have different races in our team. We have all different types of backgrounds because I've created a true open system that if you want to try out and you want to come be in the club is going to be determined on your ability to show up and put in the work. And that's what I think it should be at this level. There's a show that I watch called Hard Knocks and it talks about preseason before NFL. And this season is the Oakland Raiders. So the coach John Gruden had a quote that I loved. And it was something like, you can lead the league in effort because it takes no talent. It's just a decision you make. And it sounds like so much of Azteca's culture is about hard work and commitment. And I liked one quote you said is survivors make good players. They do. And I think that a lot of the kids I coach, um, I do have a lot of immigrant kids or first generation kids. And if you listen to some of their stories, which I'm not going to share all of them because some of it's private information, but they have had tough lives. In my opinion, they carry scars, both visible and invisible on their bodies from some of the things that they have been through. But they are some of the most loyal and tenacious kids I have ever had the privilege to work with. And I do call it a privilege because I have had the privilege to work with some of these families and be invited into their homes, um, be invited to birthday parties and quinceaneras. And I've been invited to baptisms. Um, I have attended funerals for former players. 
I've been to graduations. And it's a very special thing to be allowed into these kids' lives. And I really believe that that is what a coach is supposed to do. As a coach, you are supposed to be that mentor in their life. And it's not always nice. Sometimes it's tough love. There have been players that I've had to ask to leave the team at moments if they don't have it together. And there's been players who've been asked to leave the team who've actually come back and have performed very well and done very well with their lives. But as a coach, you're not always their best friend. You need to be their coach. And a lot of these kids need a coach. And a lot of times people get worried, especially at high levels, that an athletic director or a parent is going to push them out. And I've had friends leave coaching because athletic directors are no longer on their side or because parents don't necessarily want to be hardcore parents anymore. And they side on the side of the kid when really they should be also disciplining their kid. And that's the truth. The coach tries to be tough and actually do their job. And the parents want to baby their kid per se, instead of being like, you know what, your coach is correct and you need to level up. And instead of being on the coach's side, they're not. And then these coaches, truthfully, a lot of them leave the industry because they cannot take it anymore. And that's actually a sad thing because I've seen a lot of good coaches step back from coaching and just go work another job. What have you found to really apply to students that is effective in getting them to work harder or stay motivated or to have that extra grit? I had a really good coaching friend tell me one time that the standards have to be the same for all the players in the team, regardless of the talent level. And that means you might lose some games because you push out those players with the wrong type of attitude. And I actually had that happen to me in 2016. I had two players who were very extremely gifted players who I'm actually still close to. They had attitude issues and ego issues. And they tried to start a fight in a league one time. We were playing in the second division. And I, on that day, I literally released them from the club. I told them they had to get their own ride home. They were over 18. But that was a really tough lesson for the entire team to watch happen. And we ended up getting relegated that season. And it was really tough to lose a very good defender, a very good midfielder. But it came down to me making a decision. Am I going to hold standards at this point or am I just going to let it keep sliding? Yeah, it was really hard to lose those games by losing key players. But it had it was a decision that had to be made. Everyone had to learn a hard lesson. It was a very hard way to end a season. We ended up coming back in 2017 those players apologized. One of them did come back and became a starter again. And he scored the game-winning goal versus a rival team that was the game we needed to get promoted to the next division. And then the following year, we got promoted again. And we went back-to-back promotions in that league, which was a really big deal. And it was the first time that a female owner and coach had done it. And it was the first time that a team from Sacramento had been promoted to the premier division in the San Francisco League. So, you know, I look back on my coaching career and during that moment, I didn't want to coach anymore. I actually considered not returning to that league after that season and after dealing with some of the issues internally in our team. And I had to refocus myself as a coach, really look at what core values I wanted to promote within the club and go find those players that would fit our core values and also set the standards with our current players that that type of behavior is no longer acceptable in the club. It was a very tough moment as a coach. It was very embarrassing, right, to get relegated out of a league, out of a division, And now we actually have two teams in that league. Sometimes going through that type of failure really does make you better. For the listeners who aren't as familiar with how soccer leagues work, can you tell us a bit more about the promotion process of how each league can move up? Yeah. The league that we compete in, which is our main league, is the San Francisco Soccer Football League. It was founded in 1902. It is the longest standing adult men's soccer league in the United States and is also produced five U.S. Open Cup winners which means that during the 70s, 80s, 60s, before MLS, when there was only NASL, another pro league, this was one of the most competitive men's leagues in the country. And it still is a very um, historic league. If you go to their offices, you can literally see banners from 1910. 
you can see international friendlies that they have hosted. They have literally over 100 years of soccer memorabilia and records, and they have produced professional players. It's a privilege to be a member of that league because it is a competitive process to even start in their third division. When we began, I made it my objective that I would coach in the premier division. Players and coaches in the first year asked me who I was, and then over the years, I've developed the respect. We all have mutual respect for each other in the league, from the board members to the players to the coaches, that we are the team from Sacramento, and Rose is the coach, and Rose is the owner, and that's her team, and those boys respect her. And so we are representing a lot of different things. When I step out there, we have majority of minority players on our team. A majority of them are also immigrants or immigrant families. I'm the only female coach in the league. And I believe that if you are a female going into a male-dominated environment, it's extremely important that you don't force them to respect you. The respect is earned, not given. You know, I hold my national C license currently, which I earned in 2018, but also just the way that you carry yourself at meetings, the way that you can carry yourself at games, the interaction with the um, referees, all that kind of plays into how they're going to see you as a leader and a manager. And I'm blessed that in this part of the world, I am even allowed to coach men because in other parts of the world, a woman would not even be allowed to coach a men or a boys soccer team because there's parts of the world where women aren't even allowed into soccer stadiums. So it is a very big deal. Right now in Iran, they're fighting for women to even be allowed to watch games. So the fact that I'm head coaching a men's team is significant. And I think it does prove a point that regardless of gender, you can be a good leader and you can be a good mentor to a lot of people. Have you seen that impact in predominantly Hispanic men and young adults that you're coaching that their perspective and perception of women have changed? I would say definitely that it's a cultural shift for a lot of them who haven't necessarily had a woman, a licensed, educated woman, necessarily in charge of something in their life. In the beginning, I actually had players whose wives and girlfriends didn't necessarily want them to come play for me because they were thinking that there might be some type of relationship thing going on. And that's not the case. I'm a professional. But there was definitely a stigma for a while that like, who's this? Quienes este mujer? Who's this woman? Even on the field, we've had teams say some pretty nasty things to my own players. Like, who's that? They'll say some nasty slur words on the sideline. And my players themselves have actually stood up for me. And you see kind of a shift in also how they perceive women, right? Because now it's not like, oh, she's so hot. Look at that chick over there. And, you know, men will still have locker room talk, of course, which is fine. It's normal human interaction. But they also have a different sense of respect for women who are in leadership positions, I believe, because they get to be around a woman who is educated, who is a good leader, you know, and it's not perfect. Teams are never perfect. And there's always tense moments between players and coaches. But I think it helps you grow a lot as a person to interact with someone who's not from your gender or demographic background. And that's what I really encourage my team, that it doesn't matter what race, social, economic background or your gender. You treat people with respect and they will earn their place in a team or an organization, essentially. How did you come up with the name Azteca for the football club? Uh, Originally, the facility I worked at was called Estadio Azteca. And I asked the owner if he wouldn't mind that I use the name. But also, I think that the name Aztec, the Aztec Warriors from Mexico really does play into kind of the philosophy our team has that it's a warrior mentality. It's you're the underdog and you're expected to perform. It's a hard work ethic. It's also a family thing. It's a very family based environment, you know, soccer family. A lot of these kids and a lot of the families I work with, like we are very close. And when players come into my team, it usually is the expectation that they'll stay for a while because that's the type of the environment I want to build. 
that I don't want it to be just some short-term thing. I would like these players to stay with me for a while. I would like to help them actually develop over years and really see that soccer developmental process. So English was your first language. How are you so fluent in Spanish? When I started playing in the adult leagues back in Reno, I actually ended up on a team where the coach didn't speak English at one point. And I realized that the soccer community that I wanted to be a part of predominantly spoke Spanish. And if I wanted to be able to interact with these families, these kids, my teammates and coaches, I really needed to become fully fluent in Spanish. I also believe it's a beautiful language with a very rich history and culture since 23 countries speak Spanish as a primary language. And as I started to delve deeper into the soccer culture where I was playing and coaching, I realized, wow, if I can really master this language and not just master how you speak the language, but understand the cultural background of everyone from all these countries, I could truly help these kids go to the next level because I can, I'm not going to have the language be the reason that they don't make it, that that language barrier, that families are not comfortable with me. I don't want that to be a reason why I can't help their kid go to the collegiate level or the next level. So one thing that I do a terrible job at is uh, during my interviews is asking about people's failures because I get so wrapped up in their story and I love hearing just really how they think and how that applies to them professionally and personally. So we haven't talked about any weakness of yours yet. What have you failed at or seen failure in? I'm sure certainly the game of soccer and coaching gives you exposure to that. But I'd love to just hear personally for you what has been one of the most impactful failures that you faced. When I was in seventh grade, I wasn't that great of a soccer player. And I don't claim to be the best soccer player ever. I'm not. But I actually was so bad that the team didn't even want me to come to tryouts. And they didn't even tell me the tryout date and time. They just said, you're not on the team. We're not even gonna let you come to tryouts. And I remember crying to my mom in middle school. And she's like, you know what? You need to get up and go put the work in if you want to get on a better team. And you need to go push yourself harder. And from that day on, I just realized that I really needed to take personal responsibility as a player, a person, an athlete to push myself to that next level and do whatever it takes to be the best player I can be on any team I compete on. And I went on to play four years high school varsity, did high school track for two years varsity, went to regionals, um, walked on to both my college teams, and then got signed at the WPSL level. I made WPSL All-Star 2016. I made All-Conference in 2018. And I'm waiting to see if I make All-Conference for 2019. And I've you know won various levels of trophies over the years in other leagues. But what I really realized was that I needed to dedicate myself a 100% if I really wanted to be a a high-level player. And if I wanted to be a high-level coach, I actually did. I got a provisional pass on my D licensing in 2012, I believe. I got a state license, which wasn't a full licensing. And then I went back and retook it and passed with my D national in 2013. And I knew that when I took my C national, I wanted to pass on the first try. And I went through to a very tough licensing up in uh, Washington with some great course instructors for my C national. And I passed that in 2018. And they told me that I was one of the better candidates in the course and that I could apply for my B national within two years, which was a really big compliment because the men who were hosting the licensing had all played professionally and were coaching professionally. One was coaching with uh, a USL championship level team and the other was working with the national team program. So that was who was evaluating for my licensing. But I had learned that you need to be the first person at the field, the last person to leave, and you need to participate 100% mentally whenever you're in a session or a game, or a weight session, or a running session, or anything, even when you're studying game film, you need to be 100% engaged in that process, if you want to be a champion, if you want to be that starter. You have one quote that I really admire, and it's simple. It just says, life is about choices, and you choose to seek excellence every day. So you have this champion mentality 24-7, 365. 
But what do you do or how do you advise your students when they're pushing themselves hard in the weight room or they're on the field and they're trying their best and it just isn't working or they're not doing as great or you see the struggle because so much of sports I feel applies to life of how to keep that mental strength. There has been moments where like I was a bench player. There was moments where I've been cut. There was moments where I didn't get to play that game. I wasn't the one picked to take the penalty kick. I, you know, I didn't live up to my expectations. I didn't play my game. And at those moments, like there has been some very, very low lows as a player, because when you put 100 percent into being an athlete or even as a coach, you hit some very low points in your life. But at the end of the day, like we do positive mental mantras. So I learned this a technique a while ago that you put your statements of what you want to be. And so I have on my wall when I wake up and when I go to sleep every day, I read these mantras that that's what I'm going to be. And it's like, I am successful. I am beautiful. I am a great soccer player. I make a difference. I'm a successful coach. Because even on the days you don't believe it, you need to say it to yourself. And that's really what I tell my players. We do goal setting every year. So in January and then about halfway through the year, we do a review and they have to write down five soccer goals, five personal goals, like personal development, and then five goals in regards to either work or school, depending on what stage of their life they're in. And then they're supposed to put on their wall and read it every day. And that type of positive mentality and just repeating it to yourself, I am successful. I am going to make it. I am going to earn a 4.0. I am going to push myself. And they have to set tangible goals. Doesn't mean I'm going to go to the World Cup. Well, you may or may not go to the World Cup. But what are tangible, realistic goals that we can set that you can work towards every day? And so that's one of the techniques that I use in myself personally and that I try to emphasize with the student athletes I work with. Did you have a great coach or mentor yourself? I've had a couple very good mentors. I think on the soccer side, there's been several. I've had coaches at the high school level. I've had coaches who are coaching at the professional level that I've asked for advice from. My coach that I've had at the WPSL level, um, Bottomo Hernandez, has really been more of a psychology coach for me because when I arrived on the team, I could play and I was fast. But what I really needed was a coach to get me through the mental hurdles of being an injured athlete, of being able to mentally relax in a high-level game, to be able to handle the pressure of playing in a stadium against girls who are professional-level players. And so that's what I've really began to understand. Also, the positive um, body mentality. A lot of female athletes are told, if you're not this percentage of body fat, or if you're not this weight, then you're not going to cut it. And I had had coaches in high school tell me, well, if you don't weigh 125 pounds, you're not going to make it past this level. And I don't weigh 125 pounds. And I'm still playing at this level. There's definitely like an eating disorder and kind of like I hate my body mentality in some of the elite runners and soccer players. And I finally found a coach that would tell me, you can eat that bread. It's okay if you want to have that. And just kind of retrain my brain to not hate myself if I failed or if I wasn't a set target weight. And so that's been a a lot of the psychology behind it. And I've had players come to me who've been told things that have kind of, they have this negative mantra in their mind and to really mentally retrain someone. That's really what separates players at the next level is the mentality. Cause you could be, I've had players come to me are short, what some people would consider fat, what some people consider not an ideal athlete to play at this level. And they perform for me and they've helped win me games. And I've had other coaches ask me, how did you get that kid to play for you so well? When he played for me, he just didn't perform like that. But the reality was that player needed someone to work on their mental game or to actually talk to them and sit down and really discuss, like, this is what's really going on in my life. This is why I'm so stressed out. This is why I'm not performing. And see, can we work on that? Can we help reduce some of those stressful factors in their life? 
And so he was a really great mentor in my life. Another great coach I've had is uh, my strength and conditioning coach. I currently have Miguel Sandoval. He's really been able to work with me through several injuries and many of my athletes and also just emphasizing actually taking rest days because a rest day can also be a mental rest. And when you're a really high level player, you don't always want to take that day or do that recovery work. You want to just go, go, go hard, hard, hard all the time. Another really good coach that I um, I worked under was Donnie Rabado, who's at Folsom Lake College. With him, his women's team, he founded that women's team at Folsom Lake College, and they have gone to win championships in their conference. They've gone on to state. He's produced very high-level D1 women. And really being able to work under him and see how he built that champion culture and how he really psychologically worked with his players and put that structure in place was a great experience for me. Working under Mario Astorga when he was um, coaching Bay Area Rosal, that was a professional indoor men's team. I really got to see how he worked with professional level players. And that was a, a really great experience to see how that level of player, you develop them and how you keep them focused and how psychologically you deal with when everyone on the team is that good. When there are men who are going to go MLS, who have played MLS around the team, or they play on the beach national soccer team, or they play on the professional indoor soccer team for the USA, and they're going to represent how do you work with a player that's that good? Because you don't work with them on technical work. You don't necessarily need to teach them how to be fit. They're already fit. How do you teach that high-level player tactics? How do you teach them how to work with other players? How do you control egos within a team? How do you control anger and rage You know when they're after a loss? And so learning about that. Um, also another great coach that I've learned a lot from is Mark Dos Santos, who coached the SF Deltas in Nassau when they won a national championship in 2017. He allowed me to watch a training session with their professional team and then also just sent me emails in regarding how do you build a winning culture? And then I had the privilege of watching them win the national championship for Nassau at Kizar Stadium and just seeing how he had picked some of these men that people had counted out as professional players win that national championship and play like a team. It was really a beautiful season to watch. And uh, it was a privilege to really understand how he was building that team culture. What did you learn from that when you viewed his session? Mark Dos Santos is a great coach. He's coached in multiple countries around the world. Now he's coaching at the MLS level as an assistant. But just seeing the fundamentals, and I tell my players, you know, when you watch these professional level sessions, they are working on the fundamentals. But the difference is that they're doing it at a faster pace and with real intention on every single pass. Every single pass is perfect. Every single trap is disciplined. They do their warm-up 100%. They don't lollygag through their warm-up. They really focus on every movement because they know that every second counts when you're preparing to win a national championship. And, you know, another great coach that I have not worked under but who I really look up to is Anson Dorrance, who has coached the University of North Carolina women's soccer team to 22 or 23 national championships. I had the privilege of watching him coach the College Cup at um, Avaya Stadium in San Jose in 2016. They didn't win that national championship, but his book, The Vision of a Champion, is something I read when I was 14 years old, and it's recommended reading for all my players because he coached Mia Hamm. He worked with the women's uh, national team when they won the World Cup in 99, and he has produced so many professional players out of the University of North Carolina. His philosophy is all about building a team culture, personal excellence, taking responsibility, and so when I have young women that I work with who are very serious about playing at the next level, I give them that book and I tell them, I want you to read this book and I want you to take pictures of the pages you find that relate to your life. And, you know, he picks grinders. He picks those players who he, you know, believes can do it. And he also went to the national championship last year and uh, they lost to Florida State, who 
Um, they ended up winning the national championship D1. Just watching how they play and watching that family culture, that's really because at the top level, everyone's good, but it's how do you develop that mental culture within your team to want to be a championship team? To build a championship culture, you have to coach each individual player. And it seems like each person battles their own demons. And whether it's, you know, at home, it's at school, and you mentioned kind of body image issues and eating disorders. How have you seen that with the young women that you have coached and then also for yourself through the years? When I was younger, it was definitely told to me, well, you need to be this amount of pounds. You need to do, you need to look like this, this and that wasn't, you know, a bad thing from the area I grew up in. It was just kind of like that was what was being emphasized. And especially when I ran track and field, there is eating disorders because you want to be a lower body fat. But the problem is that you actually get the female trifecta um, when you have amenorrhea because women lose their periods when they get too low body fat. And what happens if you lose your period, a lot of women will lie about it. So I would actually lie about it because I didn't want to admit to my coach that I no longer had my menstrual cycle because my body fat had dropped so low. And what happens when female athletes, when that drops so low, they don't even want to mention it sometimes because they don't even want to bring it up to their coach. They feel it's embarrassing. But what happens is you can actually have lower bone density. Your hormones are different and you're at a higher risk for eating disorders. And so I experienced that, but I never, I would lie to my coach. And so I didn't feel open talking about it. No one had really discussed it with me. It wasn't until I was actually becoming a licensed personal trainer that I even realized that that was a disorder. And so unfortunately, a lot of coaches who are working at the youth level or even the junior college or the collegiate four-year level, there are a lot of male coaches working with female athletes and they don't feel comfortable talking about it. And even some of the female coaches may not have the background to even discuss it with them. And so it's kind of an unsaid topic sometimes because you're supposed to be fast and they don't always discuss it. They'll get like stress fractures because your bone density will actually drop if you're not getting your menstrual cycle regularly. But People will lie about it because they don't want to bring it up or they don't want to be labeled as different. And then there's also like the mental challenges. I mean, I went through depression when I had my injury. You know, there's a lot of ups and downs and a lot of athletes will never admit that they're having dark thoughts to coaches because they don't want to be labeled as the problem athlete. They don't want to have that label on them. And so for some players, I'm the first coach they've actually opened up to to tell me that they are having thoughts or that they have a physical issue. And I have to actually tell them, like, I'm not going to cut you if you admit these things to me. We need to help you so that you don't have long-term problems. Or if they have an injury that they don't want to always discuss because they're worried that they're not going to play or they're going to get cut. But you need to get your injuries fixed. Your mental health is an injury. It literally is. And if your mental health is an issue, it needs to be dealt with. You need to seek treatment. And a lot of times, another thing that happens is a lot of these kids do not have the health insurance to help them. So if there's a serious injury, they might go to a person who's not a licensed doctor or physical therapist because they can't afford to go to a big office. And so, you know, we have an active body work location in Sacramento that I have a relationship with the owner and that I'm able to get like my rate for me as an athlete, but I can apply that discounted rate to my athletes and help them get treatment when they're actually injured. And so I try to teach them that there are ways to take care of your body. You don't have to be hiding an injury from me. And then in the mental side, I mean, that really is also a tough one too, because you cannot force someone to go to a counselor. You cannot force someone to get medical treatment. Obviously, if I'm getting a kid who's telling me they want to kill themselves, you know, that's going to be handled immediately. But in the reality of it, there are a lot of things that hold families back when they don't have the financial means to get treatment for a whole host of issues. And so I have learned a lot about discounted ways for these people to get help, publicly funded ways for them to get treatment. And so that's one of my jobs is as an educated coach, I need to seek out these options for these families. What advice do you give those students who are suffering and who do 
confide in you that they have, you know, really tough um, thoughts and whether it's suicidal or, or not? And how did you personally also get out of that bout of depression that you had? It was a whole kind of mentality shift and also putting myself in a positive mental environment. You are a reflection of your environment. If you can put yourself around better people who are focused on their education and pushing their career and becoming elite athletes, the more you can hang out with good people who are also trying to push themselves forward in life, the more you realize, first of all, I could also do that. Because in high school, even when I was a student athlete, my counselor never told me that I could go to a UC. Now, I was from a different state, but regardless, it wasn't even brought up. They asked me, oh, that's nice. Are you going to go to the community college locally? I was like, no, I'm going to try and go play at a collegiate level. I'm not going to stay here. But for a lot of students, they may not have that tenacity to go out and challenge it. But the reality is, why do we tell these students just because you're at a high school that's deemed low income or primarily or predominantly minority that you could not even attempt to apply for that big college? Why do we hold these kids back? I mean, I didn't ever even consider applying to you know, UC Davis when I was younger. It was actually a professor at junior college, Sandra Camarena, who is still a professor at Sacramento City College, where I ended up getting my associates, who told me, you know, you could apply to UC Davis. Because at the time, I'd actually struggled with academic probation because I'd been working so hard, I had failed a couple classes because I didn't understand that I should have withdrawn and that I should have taken other classes. And I finally got with a real counselor and with a good professor who told me, well, you're smart. You just didn't have proper guidance. You didn't understand the system. And then I was able to participate in the transfer admission guarantee program hosted through the Los Rios School District and apply to UCs. And I was accepted in UC Davis. But there are so many other kids who are also extremely smart and who are extremely driven who just do not understand the system. And so as you know, an alumni of a junior college, I'm always pushing, you know, maybe you should be at a junior college for two years and then we help you get into a really great D1 program. And that's not a bad thing. There are a lot of great athletes who do that. There's a lot of great career-minded people who do that because typically I work in finance and they're like, well, where did you go to school? Well, I went to this public inner city high school and then I went to this public junior college and then I went to UC Davis. My degree says UC Davis, but it was a long pathway there. And sometimes people don't always want to look at those kids. They want to look at the kid that went to that private high-ranked high school and then they had a perfect SAT score and then they went into a UC. Well, I was in classes and I had a higher GPA than some of those kids. Why? Maybe it's because I did have to struggle. Maybe it's because I did have to fail and I had to go to five different junior colleges and figure it out and then transfer in. And it made me that much hungrier. When I did get to Davis, teachers would ask me, are you a transfer student? You just seem hungrier. And I was like, yes, I'm here to get my degree and go get my job. And I was working when I was in school as well. But, you know, I tell my students, you need to stand out in a good way. You need to sit at the front of the class. Your phone should be off and you should be participating to get all the extra credit points you can. That is what you need to do. You hinted that you also work in finance. Yeah, I work for a private office. I was hired when I graduated from UC Davis. So I began working there in 2017. Uh, Previously, I worked at a a corporation. I was working part-time and full-time when I was in school. I primarily work in looking at private equity and venture capital deals, which is actually, there's a lot of correlation with looking at founders of companies, you know, entrepreneurs, and finding that diamond in the rough soccer player to go to the next level. There's a lot of obsession There's a lot of hunger and there's a lot of drive in both of those groups. So I really enjoy working in both spaces. I get to work with some incredible people. You had mentioned that the proper guidance that you were given because you found one or two really good counselors. And it sounds like you ultimately have transformed to being that counselor for your students. I read a few of the letters that said, I had no idea what I didn't know until you taught me or some of the classes that I should take or some of the tests that I should enroll in. 
how did that evolve for you in terms of saying, I'm going to step outside of just being a coach and being an academic guide for them? What I realized originally is I was just being a coach back in my earlier coaching days. I would just put kids in college like I could get them an offer and they would go off to college. But some of them were bouncing back or doing poorly. And when I started to backtrack, I'm like, okay, what's going wrong here? Why is this kid struggling? And he's such an amazing athlete. He's such a great player. When I realized that there was foundational elements from their high school years and even middle school that they didn't get some foundational elements in their education or they didn't get the proper mentorship or I hadn't told them, well, you need to do this type of application for a scholarship. You need to apply for the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities scholarship. There is Scholarly, this app that does a lot of helps you pick which scholarships are designated for you. And I didn't know that. And so as I started to develop my own personal coaching philosophy, I realized I need to coach them in many other areas as well. Personal goal setting, strength and conditioning so they don't rip their ACL. Then we got a a real strength and conditioning coach, you know, working with the team twice a week. I need to make sure that their technical skills are there. We have to do futsal at least once a week. We need to play in a more competitive league. Now we're in the SFSFL and I've coached in the UPSL. I need to make sure that they're getting to college identification camps twice a year. So now we go to two ID camps every year. I make sure that they go to one professional game to watch per year or two if I can. The Oakland Roots just started a professional franchise and we're going to go watch one of their games. We finally finalize the ticket pricing because I want to get bulk ticket pricing for my teams. I'm trying to get my team out to hopefully a Stanford game this year. We've gone to UC Davis games and just opening their eyes up that these institutions even exist, that these teams even exist to tour them on the campus, to walk them around, to have them talk to the Berkeley coach, to have them talk to Cal State Stanislaus coach, to have them meet the Sac State coach. And just opening these doors that these kids, they would not meet these people otherwise or even be on a campus. You know, a lot of times these kids live in cities where there are colleges and they've never been on the campus in their life because typically they're the first in their family to graduate high school or college and their parents don't know. And it's no one's fault. It's just that it's the unknown. And it takes someone to open that door and teach them that, yes, you can choose this reality. You don't have to go work a minimum wage job. You can seek excellence in yourself. You can do it. And usually it's the first time that they've even thought that they could possibly achieve that. And so I had people believe in me and help me when I was at low points. And so what a privilege it is that I can come back and work with these kids and these young adults and teach them information that's public information. They just don't know how to find it. I was a recipient of a scholarship at Sacramento City College for the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities Scholarship in D.C. I applied for it and I was selected. So they flew me out and they taught me about scholarships for a week. And I was able to tour the Capitol, and it was an incredible experience. And that scholarship program competitively selects five to 10 students every year to be flown out and to learn about what's available. It also teaches you how to lobby with your elected representatives. And alumni from that scholarship have actually gone on to work on Capitol Hill. And so I actually advocated for funding for that program. I spoke before the Los Rios School Board. And they're going to continue to fund the program, which is a beautiful thing because it really does impact these kids' lives. So I'm always advocating that education is the key to getting someone out of poverty. And that is the reality. People want to say, we want to go donate to this charity, this 501c3. Well, the reality is this. If you want to help someone provide for themselves, you need to open doors for education and encourage them to pursue careers that would help them make a real income. That is the reality. You know, everyone wants to be like, we're going to go donate, you know, and go to a $5,000 charity dinner. Well, the reality is that you could donate $5,000 to a junior college scholarship program. And there are a lot of kids who are actively pursuing their associate's degrees that will transfer to a four-year institution and will impact the world. 
And that is a better use of your money, to be totally honest. And, you know, everyone's doing their own thing to try and help the world. But education is really what's going to impact these kids and help them get to that next level. How do you define success? Is it one would look at your career as a coach? One would look at your career as a uh, investor in a lot of different ways to define it quantitatively. But how do you define success? I actually learned a uh, kind of a strategy when I was kind of restructuring my life when I went through depression and the injuries and kind of figuring out who do I really want to be. And every New Year's Eve, I take a big white poster board and I write down eight to 10 goals and I put them in black ink on the wall across from my bed. And every morning and every night I read them. And do I hit every single one of those marks? Not necessarily, but every day I wake up and I read my goals. And when I go to sleep, I look at my goals and I read them. And if the goals need to be adjusted, they can be adjusted. But the reality is, how can I pursue excellence in my personal life, right? In like how I carry myself as an individual, my training, my coaching. Just because we don't win a league championship doesn't mean I'm not being successful with the kids I'm working with. Just because a kid doesn't go to a four university doesn't mean I'm not being successful either. Because for a lot of the student athletes I work with, just even getting a high school diploma is successful for them. Because they're the first one in their family to earn a high school diploma and be fully employed and be out doing it on their own. So success can vary for me in regards to, am I doing the absolute best I can with the people who are brought into my life? Am I doing the absolute best I can to keep my own life in order so that I can help other people? Because if you don't have your own life together, it's very tough to help other people. So I have to keep remembering that I need to keep my affairs going along so that I can be a resource for these kids and these young adults. So success is, it's a variable. I have to push myself personally, and then I have to hold high standards, and then I have to stick to my word on the standards I'm upholding for the players and people I work with, both in my professional career and in the soccer world. I love that so much. It was uh, such a, a rich answer, and it reminds me of a conversation I heard with John Wooden, and he was asked what his favorite team was through the years, and he has coached you know years and years of, of champions, and they, you'd think that it would be the championship-winning team with uh, Kramer or whatnot. And he named some team that no one had really heard of. And when asked why, he said it was because that team maximized their potential the most. And I absolutely love the answer because it was one of those that as a coach, only you would know what you could really unlock for other students. And it was just a beautiful answer. And so I have to ask you, who or what inspires you? The kids I work with. I had a kid I worked with who I actually recruited when I was driving to pick up another kid. And I'll never forget it. I always tell his story. His name's Diego, Salvadorian immigrant family. I coached him and his brother way back in 2011, 12, and part of 2013. He was a middle schooler when I, I started coaching him. And they're like, hey, you should go try and get Diego for the team. And I was very young coach. Uh, I was kind of going through my own problems on my own because I was depressed because I wasn't able to play because I was injured. And they're like, yeah, go pick up Diego. And I find this kid and we're picking him up to go to practice. And he's hitting a soccer ball against a concrete wall, just smacking it. And I'll never forget it because... In other parts of the world, everyone's like, oh, you know, those street ballers, those kids who go train on their own, those are the best players. And organically, I'm just literally about to pick up this kid. And he's like, oh, let me grab some food. And he gets in the car, he's eating an ice cream cone. And I'm like, who's this kid? He's going to come to my competitive soccer practice. And and so I, I get the kids out there and I'm like, all right, boys, you know, um, grab your balls. We're going to do a juggling test, which is where you keep the ball in the air with your feet, right? And he's the best one at it. I'm looking at this kid. He doesn't look like an amazing athlete. He looks okay. I'm like, all right, we're going to run stairs. And then we get into the 1v1 drills where you're doing moves on the ball to beat someone to go to goal. And he's the champion. And he's like, I just love to play. I'm actually on like the number one team in this league. But if you're coaching, I'd like to be on your team. 
and I hadn't even met his parents. I found out, you know, just his mom and his, and his two brothers and like the dad wasn't in the picture. And this was a low income area. It's actually in Sparks, Nevada. And that three mile radius in that area has produced MLS level players. But the soccer culture in that area is probably one of the most incredible. If you did a state like a case study of how many state champions and professional players they produced out of that neighborhood is amazing for the amount of resources they don't have. And you truly see some of the best players come out of that neighborhood. And I actually had an assistant coach come out of that area. And um, his name was Joel. He was my assistant coach. And they won a state championship out of that high school. And that was where that kid was zoned for. And I'll never forget it because he used to be ready to go for 7 a.m. games in an indoor league we played in. And when he was 12, he helped lead the U15 team to a finals in that indoor futsal league. We were like the total underdogs. And this kid at 12 years old is out here balling it up with kids way older than him. And I remember just putting him in a game and we were down. I think we were down like three to one at halftime in an outdoor game. And I was like, you guys want to win this game? Let's go. And these like 12 year old boys went on to win it five to three. And he scored a hat trick. And I just remember watching this player like he had never played club soccer. Unbelievable athlete. And he ended up we kept the relationship up. He's graduated from high school and I, I coached his brother for a while. And he came to my wedding. You know, he showed up and I was just like, wow, that I coached this kid. And if I was looking at a team that I love to coach was really, you know, that U13 boys team and those those teams that I coached in that futsal league, they were unbelievable players with very little resources. And it was just such an inspiration for me to see these kids who really didn't, you know, they couldn't pay for personal training sessions. And they'd be like, Rose, come out. I want to show you where all my friends train. And they took me out to these tennis courts in this low-income neighborhood, and they had, like, rigged the lights to stay on to, like, 11 or 12 at night. You know, they had found some way to turn on these tennis court lights, and they were just playing for hours and hours and hours, no coaches, no fancy equipment, hours. And then I was back there uh, for my wedding in December up in Reno, and I went out to train on a field, and then I'm running around the field, and I see this kid wearing Azteca, like, beanie. And I'm like, who's that kid? And I get up there and he's the younger brother of one of the kids I coached on my team who would drive out from Reno to play in the SF League, who's now playing at UNLV. And he's like, I'm George's little brother. And this kid is out there December 23rd, freezing weather, training for two hours. The lights go off and he keeps training in the parking lot for another hour. So for me, when I see players like that, just really grinding it out, it's such an inspiration to me. And I'm like, wow, what a gift that I even get to work with these athletes because they truly are maximizing their potential. They truly don't have a helicopter parent driving them to every game. They really have to figure it out and they really love the game. It really motivated me to build this type of program for those types of kids so that they do have a shot at making it and that the financial resources don't hold them back from going to play at a college or even attending a college academically. I love that so much. That's inspiring just to hear a little, and I'm sure to see it is even more powerful. I'm a big fan of Sean Aker's work. He's a Harvard uh, researcher in the field of positive psychology, and he has a list of things that he recommends people do to maintain happiness or their journey to happiness. And, you know, it'll be journaling, you know, writing things down that you're grateful for. And one of them is random or conscious acts of kindness. And it makes me think of you quite a bit because I think your coaching style is so kind. It, it goes above and beyond just the definition of coaching because it's the idea of you go into these kids' lives and you help them in such a way that is so long-lasting and so impactful. And so I, I just love that and it inspires me to just be better and stay positive. When I think about all the literature I've read on the walls and the letters and it's filled with love, and they mentioned the Rose Method. What is the Rose Method? It was actually a term that one of my players and their parents kind of came up with. They're like, it's just... You're, it's such a different coaching style. It's like your method. It's like the Rose method. 
And then I was like, I kind of like that. They're like, yeah, we should hashtag it. I'm like, okay. And so I ended up putting it on all our t-shirts for training. And, you know, we put the website on the bottom and then hashtag the Rose Method. And my players, these tough, you know, these tough kids, these tough men. And then on the back says the Rose Method. And people will be like, who's Rose? Like, that's my coach. And so it's kind of like a conversation starter. And then it's kind of just a mantra that there is a method to getting that kid to the next level. And it's not what the soccer industry is always promoting to these families, in my opinion. And also, it doesn't always get that kid into a long-term sport or a long-term love for the game. Because when you make it about endless travel tournaments and this and that, are you really building a soccer culture? Are you really building that like family connection with these kids so that they literally just want to play the game? Because there's like these statistics that girls are dropping out of sports so quickly and it's it can be really mean. Like I played with some girls in middle school who were very mean to me and I actually almost quit the sport in my eighth grade year because they were so mean and bullied me, right? And, you know, it builds character to get bullied. I think it's, you know, it is what it is. But when I got to my high school and these um, Latino boys that played on the boys team and the girls who I played with, who I'm still friends with a lot of these girls, young women now, they have their own families. They were just so loving and accepting. We won a semifinal. They're like, come over, we're going to eat tamales and let's have a good time. And I was just like, wow, this is such a different culture. Like we want to eat together and we want to hang out together and we're going to play together and win or lose. Like we're still friends. And it was just really beautiful culture. And I was like, I want to recreate this type of family atmosphere with the kids and so that they want to keep playing for a long time. And so the method is really seeking excellence. And there are standards and we obviously do train as a team, but it's also supporting each other. So when we go out to the San Francisco League, our reserve players, the boys, the majority high school boys, they watch our premier men play in Boxer Stadium, which is a professional level stadium. And then the men come watch the boys play in the third division in the reserves. And, you know, last weekend they're cheering for them. And it just it's a really beautiful thing to have these young boys in the club playing with some of the men who I have on the team who've played division two, division one soccer, who've played semi-professionally and just to have that relationship. And it's a very healthy thing, especially for men and boys to be in that type of good environment where they're hanging out with men who have gone to get their degrees, who are pursuing excellence at a professional level in a job and for them to ask them questions. They can talk to them whenever they want and they get to hang out with them and You know, I don't have to say something sometimes because it's already there as an example that this is what you want to emulate. This is the type of excellence you want to pursue. Ram Keller, one of the boys I work with, he, you know, got an academic award at his NAIA program. It's a four year school in Kansas. And he ended up getting NAIA National Offensive Player of the Week last fall as a junior last year. He got it last year for September week. And now he's going into a senior year. And then on his last game with the team, all the high school boys want to take a picture with him because he's such a good example of a young man in college pursuing excellence and both on and off the field, you know, and he holds himself to professional standard. And so for the high school boys to be around that is a really big deal. And then one of my friends who played professionally in Uruguay and he played professional indoor, Norm Levesque, came out to practice on Tuesday and he actually reached out to me. He's like, I really love what you're doing. Would love to come out and talk to your teams. And so he was a guest speaker and he also played in the session with us. I invited him to stay and he played in the session. But for my high school boys and even junior college players who want to transfer to play against a man who played Division One soccer and went on to play professionally at a Tuesday night training session is huge. But that's the type of experiences I like to open up for my players as much as I can. What are you most proud of? I'm most proud of the kids that I've helped get into college. And also not only just the kids who got into college, but also the kids that I've seen personal development in. Uh, those are uh, truly some of the most successful things in my life that that really bring me joy. Some of my players write me letters, actually, which 
I keep laminated on my wall. And when I feel low about maybe not hitting a mark that I want to hit a personal goal in my life, I go read those letters. And at the end of the day, I'm like, I was allowed to experience certain things in life. I have the privilege of earning my education and playing at this very high level. And I am grateful that I get to work with these kids and hopefully that I can help some of these kids also achieve that type of personal success. It's a very big deal for me. Achieving personal success as an athlete is obviously always a goal. Any athlete always wants to be at the best they can possibly can for as long as they possibly can and play as long as they possibly can. But realistically, working with some of these kids and being able to watch them graduate high school and college is truly a joy. And to see them succeed in life and have a good life and not have to struggle financially as much anymore and not have them in jail and just to see them succeeding is a really big deal for me. I feel like that all of the failures I encountered in my life brought me to this moment where I actually have the, I guess you could say wisdom and also the empathy to work with these kids. It's not always easy. It's not easy waking up at 5 a.m. for 22 Sundays and driving two to three hours each direction and coaching games against extremely tough teams. Every single game that we play in that league is an away game. We don't have home games in that league. And it's extremely exhausting. And it's, you know, you go from our preseason started the week after I got back from my honeymoon, which was in mid-January, and we're still in season right now. So it's an extremely long, exhausting season, but that's really how you build character. And that's what really gets a kid ready for that next level of soccer. So yeah, I think that compared to all the trophies I've won, which of course I love winning, but seeing those kids succeed in life is really the greatest success I could ever feel. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation that I am way better off having spent an hour plus with you. It's a privilege to have this conversation. And one thing that I have grown to like is this quote that you had and you use called grow up and glow up. And I feel like you've really helped me see so much more wisdom in the sport, wisdom in the psychology. And I thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. <laughs>